Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Welcome to our guest today, a resident of Somers, Neil Herman, who is a retired FBI agent and one of the lead FBI agents involved with our counterterrorism operations after the first World Trade Center bombing. He worked for the FBI from 1974 up until his retirement in July 1st, 1998. Welcome, Mr. Herman. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So please tell us as much as you are permitted about your counterterrorism and investigation role in the FBI before and after the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. Also, um, please give our listeners, I guess, a brief overview of the timeline of your career. I came into the FBI in 1971 and became a special agent in uh, 1973, went to the Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and uh, completed the course. I then was assigned to the Miami Division for uh, about a year and a half before being transferred to New York in the summer of 1974. When I came to New York in 1974, the early remnants of what became the modern age of international and domestic terrorism began in the early 1970s, primarily at the Summer Olympics at Munich when 12 Israeli athletes were murdered. The PLO, Black September group was responsible. They also were responsible for putting bombs down in Manhattan at Jewish institutions and other landmarks. In 1974, when I came to New York as a young agent, it was, I guess, the right place at the wrong time because that's when the terrorism field, primarily in New York, Chicago, large metropolitan offices were beginning to work terrorism. The Puerto Rican independence movement was worked by us. This was before the Joint Terrorism Task Force was formed in May of 1980. 160 bombings of the FALN, which was seeking um, international recognition and uh, their ability to uh, free themselves from the Puerto Rican uh, movement. They wanted their own identity. 160 bombings over seven years. Major investigations went on for the next 15 years in New York, primarily the LaGuardia Airport bombing. In 1975, which uh, took the lives of 13 people, still an unsolved bombing where uh, individuals placed the device at the LaGuardia Airport. At that time, it was the largest incident of terrorism in America. The following year, we worked on a major investigation 16 blocks from the White House known as the Chill Bomb Investigation. It was uh, at DuPont Circle, a car bomb It was the first time international act of terrorism was committed in America. As it turned out, it was a uh, the Chilean government under Augusto Pinochet was responsible for the funding through anti-Castro groups. Major investigation that went on for several years and ultimately led to successful prosecutions in Washington. Um, The late 1970s, you had the Croatian movement, the Serbian uh, freedom fighters. The Albanians were involved with major bombings in New York, in Chicago, San Francisco. Uh, By the late 1970s, 
You had the anti-Castro groups, which was responsible for bombings in New York and uh, Miami and uh, the early remnants in the 1980s. The Weather Underground hooking up with the Black Liberation Army was responsible for the famous case, which is going to memorialize its 40-year anniversary next month, October 20th, 1981, of the Brinks case in which uh, two police officers and one uh, Brinks guard were murdered in an internet group that was responsible for predicate acts of bank robberies, prison escapes, and the remnants of the Weather Underground. Task Force was formed in 1980. In May of 1980, the original task force here in New York, under the leadership of Ken Walton, the uh, deputy assistant director in charge, Bob McGuire of the New York City Police Department, began a task force that was responsible for um, investigating domestic uh, and international acts of terrorism. It was the boilerplate foundation for what ultimately became the terrorism task force concept that's utilized now in every FBI field office in 56 cities across America and in around the world in approximately a dozen uh, world capitals. By the mid-1980s, you had uh, major investigations involving the Unabomber investigation, the bombing of Pam Ann 103, over Lockerbie, Scotland, December of 1988, and uh, ultimately uh, the murder of Meyer Kahani in the city of Manhattan, uh, New York City, in the November of 1990, and then ultimately the real beginning of what led up to became 9-11 tragedy was the first World Trade Center bombing, February 26, 1993. It was the... Uh, an act of international terrorism in America. Six six individuals uh, subsequently were identified when a Ryder truck was uh, parked in the basement of the B2 level at the World Trade Center. Approximately 1,500 pounds of explosives were utilized. Ramsey Yosef was the coordinator of the mastermind of this event. It began a series of renditions that we brought people back from Amman, Jordan, from uh, Cairo, from Egypt, from uh, Pakistan, from Malaysia. And it really set the tone for the future of what became international terrorism around the world. Now, were these arrests internationally, was it in partnership with these countries or sort of? The renditions, Mm -hmm. after we made several arrests here in the United States, the investigation began to unfold that a number of the defendants had fled the country. These were very sensitive investigations which included the State Department, the head uh, Department of Justice. Each rendition, there were teams of agents from New York with the coordination of the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Manhattan under the leadership of uh, uh, the offices of Mary Jo White. And each rendition, our extradition, had to be coordinated through the Justice Department and through the uh, government that we were dealing with to uh, bring back these individuals to stand trial here in Manhattan. At the same time, the investigation continued and the hunt for Ramsey Yosef continued for the next two years. There was a subsequent investigation involving the uh, conspiracy of Sheikh Rachman and 12 defendants uh, that included um, the uh, conspiracy to blow up landmarks in New York City, tunnels and bridges, 
in the FBI offices. That case went on post the first World Trade Center. And then, in my opinion, the most significant bridge between what early happened in 1993 and 9-11 was the case that we investigated involving uh, called the Bojinga plot, in which the defendants, the remnants, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's now presently in Guantanamo, was identified with a number of individuals and uh, called the attempted conspiracy to blow up 12 American airline jets over the Pacific Ocean simultaneously in the mid-1990s. We then also piggybacked all this during the tragedy of the TWA Flight 800 case uh, in the summer of 1996, which just memorialized its 25th year anniversary. We worked hand in hand for almost two years with the National Transportation Safety Board. The tragedy occurred over Long Island in the early morning hours of July 17th. 240 people lost their lives, many of them young students, teenagers. They were on their way from New York to Paris. The plane had come in that afternoon from Athens, Greece. It was probably the most massive investigation at that time in FBI history. As it turned out, the final uh, report that was written by the National Trans, we reassembled the plane. 90% of the plane was reassembled. And uh, the final determination strongly uh, suggested that there was a center fuel tank explosion, which was not caused by a bomb at the time. a tremendous uh, investigation was conducted for those two years. Was that also your conclusion? That was the final conclusion that was uh, determined by uh, our presentation by the National Transportation Safety Board with the FBI in the fall of uh, 1998. Were there any people, if you can't answer this, it's fine, but were there any people perhaps um, who uh, had differing opinions? Well, there was strong evidence at the time. There was massive amounts of uh, witnesses. There was a lot of speculation in the press and by statements made by what appeared to be some kind of a, either um, an external effect to cause the plane to come down. But based on our examination, exhaustive examination, the conclusion that the National Transportation Safety Board made with the Bureau was that uh, it was not determined to be a bomb or a criminal act. And the Bureau concluded that uh, it was a tragedy involving an electrical fuel probe that caused the explosion and the plane to come apart in the fall of 1998. And then I left the Bureau, retired in uh, July of 1998. Ironically, had my retirement party at the World Trade Center on September 11th, 1998 at the Windows of the World and left the government. But uh, then the, uh, the decade ended with the series of bombings in East Africa in August of 1998 massive investigation by the FBI overseas with the governments in uh, East Africa. Those people were subsequently identified, prosecuted here in New York because of the connection with some of the investigations that had been ongoing. And then the decade ended with the tragedy uh, off the coast of Yemen on the USS Cole, where uh, 17 American sailors were killed in a suicide boat uh, bombing. And the investigation uh, 
ended with a successful identification and prosecution. And then ultimately, a short time later, the tragedy of 9-11 occurred. Now, where were you on Tuesday morning, September 11, 2001? Well, I was here. I had uh, stayed in the town of Somers. I've lived here since uh, I can't, we moved here in the summer of 1978. And I was right here in, uh, in Somers, in Heritage Hills. And I began to watch the events occur on television. And I began then to get phone calls from people back on the task force. It was very eerie based on what had occurred during the previous 10 years uh, when I was a supervisor on the terrorism task force. And uh, the investigation then began to unfold. Did you know after the first plane was hit? I mean, I know that there wasn't the same type of alarm within everyone's reaction until the second plane hit. But I'm assuming after the first plane hit, you had some hunches about what was happening. Well, watching it unfold, I think the first plane hit it, it was 8.46. The second plane came in around 17, 18 minutes later, just after nine o'clock. In my opinion, when I saw the the videotape of the first plane hitting, I believed in my own mind it was Al-Qaeda. They had had an obsession over the years. By the time 9-11 happened that morning, Osama bin Laden, colleague Sheikh Mohammed, were known to us here in New York. They were under sealed indictment. I believed it was an act of terrorism, and I believed Al-Qaeda was responsible. And then, of course, as the days began to unfold, it became more and more obvious based on the statements that were being made primarily uh, by uh, Al-Qaeda and the remnants of what became the Taliban. It didn't surprise me. I was surprised to the extent of the uh, loss of life And the fact that those two towers came down was really remarkably sad. And it's a sobering day on the 20th anniversary to see the the tragedy uh, unfold over a a long number of years and many incidents leading up to that event. Now, you said you had a lot of received a lot of phone calls when you're part of the FBI for so long. Do you ever really leave the FBI or were you helping out in some periphery ways? Well, I w- again, I had been removed for about a little over two year, two and a half years. I still had many friends in the Bureau, in law enforcement, not just in the FBI, but in the State Department, the Secret Service, immigration, state police, New York City police. I had many friends in, in law enforcement all over the country at that time. You couldn't help but wonder the extent of the, the investigation as to where it would lead. And uh, even to this day, there are still many unanswered questions involving the roles of several governments that may have helped the 19 hijackers who didn't help or weren't cooperating with us. That's the sadness about working these acts of terrorism, whether domestic or international terrorism. Working these cases really was quite different in that the event itself is a split second when it happens whether it's a car bomb, whether it's a bombing at a building, whether it's a plane that's hijacked, whether it's uh, any act of terrorism, there's several common denominators. There's several threads. It's an incredibly fast. The case itself, the investigation, oftentimes takes many years to develop. There's a, uh, a lot of media pressure. It's the kind of a case 
that's worked on over a long period of time. And it generally takes a toll on the agents and the investigators and detectives that work these cases. Even though it occurs in a lightning fast start, it's almost as if the case itself takes on a a life of itself in that there are multiple trials, multiple defendants. Oftentimes, the defendants nowadays are spread out all over the world. Uh, The FBI in the early 70s and the 80s and even into the early 90s, it was more confined to large metropolitan cities. There were exceptions. The Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 was an exception. Even the Boston Marathon case was primarily a localized case with the defendants in a local area. But these cases are very unique in that the violence and the victims' families are all part of the component. It becomes a very uh, personal thing for the people that work these cases. On the one hand, you see a lot of uh, families. Uh, There is really no closure for these events. The people that work these cases oftentimes become connected with uh, the families. I remember working on the Pan Am 103 bombing uh, over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988. The FBI was responsible for interviewing many of the victims' families in New York area. Uh, Right here in Westchester, there were a number of uh, families that were from the uh, the Syracuse University. So they were located in New York City, Westchester, Rockland County. I remember interviewing a woman. I interviewed a number of the victims' families from that case. And I remember we did this interview on New Year's Eve, nine days after that tragedy. And uh, we went to the house. It was New Year's Eve because we had to do our investigation. We had victims, remnants. We had uh, identification purposes. So there was a lot of pressure to determine who caused this tragedy in which so many people were killed. Ultimately, it was determined that the Libyan government was responsible for that event. But I remember going to this woman's house not far from here in Somers. It was a, a, a massive estate. New Year's Eve, it was almost midnight. Myself and another agent drove up past a long winding driveway, past the tennis courts, past the horse stables, past the swimming pool. And we came up to this estate. Uh, There was no cars. We didn't see any people. It didn't appear that anyone was there. We knocked, went around to the back, the side, and we were about to leave and leave our cards and have to contact the victim's family at a later date. And I remember going to the back door of this just incredible estate, and I saw a figure in the dark that appeared to be a person sitting motionless in the back in some kind of a study or some kind of a den area through the glass doors. And I knocked, knocked, no movement. Then I became concerned that maybe the person was under some kind of a medical emergency. Finally, this woman got up came to the back door. It was the mother of the victim, her only son that had died in that tragedy. Now she was there. She had no family. She had no support apparatus there to help her. And we then sat down and we interviewed her, a very uh, somber, uh, sad uh, experience. Took about three hours. And here was a woman that had all the means in the world. And yet 
she had just lost the real jewel of her life. I remember after leaving, and she turned to me at the end of the interview and she said, you know, Agent Herman, what is it that you can do now for me? You could find the people that did this. And I remember leaving that interview. It was about three o'clock in the morning. And I thought to myself, at that time, I was still an agent, although I had been on the job for 15 years. This was before I became a supervisor. And lo and behold, eight years later, I was the supervisor when we were involved with the tragedy of TWA Flight 800 over Long Island. We then had built up a relationship in dealing with, with victims of these crimes over the years. And I told myself that if we ever got into a position like that, that we would deal with these victims' families with a sensitivity and the ability to really understand the complexity of talking to these families during these horrendous acts of violence. And the laws were passed. We made legislation. We applied through our legal system. The laws have subsequently been changed. And I believe in our own way, we were able to make differences in these investigations. And you see that even today in these senseless acts of gun violence in schools and in synagogues and in churches and in shopping malls that the FBI and the Department of Justice has learned a great deal in its experience over the years in dealing with victims' families. And a lot of that has changed. And still, you see today, the personal side of these families, there really never is any form of closure. But you have to deal with compassion and sensitivity to these victims' families. It's the biggest thing in their lives when they lose the jewel of their life. And they have to deal with the tragedy of working closely with law enforcement and uh, society, whether it's uh, a shooting at a school or it's a, a church incident or a shopping center or even a, just a general workplace. You see it in the incidents out in, in Colorado at a movie theater. I mean, it touches all bases of our society today. And I'm proud of what the FBI and law enforcement has been able to do over the years in dealing with these tragedies, because it really is a lifetime of tragedy. And and how do the victims' families, how do they assist in the investigation? I mean, is that what you're seeking when you interview them? It's done on different levels, in different circumstances. They have to be part of the process. It's part of the healing. Again, you don't know if there is a connection with some of the victims. You don't know if if it's just happen chance or if it's a lone shooter or if it's a bombing that's left purposely at a certain location. So you have to go in with an open mind. Each one is different. But working these cases, particularly these acts of terrorism, both domestic and international, you see the way that the uh, law enforcement, the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force evolved over the last 40 years, really now since 1980, is that the FBI primarily in offices like New York, really specialize in these investigations. In other words, these investigations are broken down into areas of expertise. You have domestic international terrorism, you have organized crime investigations, you have violent crimes investigations, you have 
counterintelligence investigations, espionage, things like that. And the agents that work these cases have to have a certain expertise in these areas. It's not as if in the days of J. Edgar Hoover, if there was a bank robbery or there was an extortion or if there was a murder or if there was uh, corruption, the whole office would stop and work the case. In these investigations now, they become a very specific, specialized areas from crime scenes to techniques, methods, investigative tools, technology. Today, you have the technology that's paramount in going in social media and not violating uh, privacy issues. And so these cases have to be very specialized and you have to have uh, the ability to conduct extensive crime scenes with multiple agencies over many days. And there has to be a great partnership between the local, state, and federal law enforcement community, as well as dealing with these foreign governments in all corners of the world, regardless of their allies and they support our country. There have to be relationships. That's why the State Department plays a major role in these investigations over uh, many different uh, time zones and political uh, statements by their governments. Total cooperation is absolutely essential. So what mistakes were made by our federal government leading up to September 11th, 2001? And the reason I ask that, and it's interesting what you were just saying, because I know, I guess, famously, that's when Department of Homeland Security was created. And I guess the critique at the time was that the CIA wasn't talking with the FBI, wasn't, and various agencies were not talking with one another. Not being in the government at the time of 9-11. I hate the term when I keep hearing from TV analysts and pundits, and so, so I say so-called experts, certainly people are entitled to their opinion. There were missed opportunities. There were, I can't say there were, there weren't mistakes. But obviously, there was some kind of a breakdown. But the term that bothers me the most is when I hear we were unable to connect the dots because we lacked the imagination of using our thought instead of looking outwardly, we should have been looking inwardly. And the events of 9-11, as tragic as they were, are very hard to prevent and stop in an open society. The events that occurred that day were over a long period of time. And again, it's very difficult to say that the government did everything it could to prevent it because it didn't. I think the facts that have happened and occurred since 9-11 only goes to show it's sort of like playing a hockey game. And I hate to make the comparison because it's not really a good comparison, but you can stop 99 out of 100 acts of terrorism But it's the one act that you let get through that is what is going to be looked at. And the reality is in an open society where people move around freely, and not just in America, you see these events occur all over Europe where people are able to move from country to country. It's a very fluid movement process where you have a lot of individuals that come from different parts of the world. You see that even today, where people are able to move around freely. They sort of stay and don't assimilate in the culture in which they've moved to. And then they built up this resistance. And consequently, that coupled with 
the transition and transgression of what we see in the social media with the internet and Facebook and uh, all kinds of uh, ideas, misinformation. It's very difficult to understand how people uh, can prevent these kinds of things from happening, as we see even in this post-January 6th insurrection, where you have domestic terrorism now being redefined. It's almost reinventing itself from the way it was when I first came into the FBI. It was over 40 years ago. Domestic terrorism is not a new phenomena in this country. It takes on different shapes. Groups change their name, whether they represent the extreme left or the extreme right. Once they become violent and they take on institutions and governments and elected officials and that throw that into the melting pot with the uh, polarization in our political process, it's combustible and it's a perfect storm, which you see uh, happening not only in America, but really all over the world. Just looking at the current events now with Afghanistan, what I feel is our abandonment of Afghanistan. Do you have any concerns about unvetted Afghan refugees wandering around our country at the moment? Well, I think it's a complicated uh, storyline because our role in Afghanistan really evolved beginning in 2001, right after 9-11, when we went in using our military uh, might. We went in looking for uh, those that were responsible for killing 3,000 Americans uh, in hijacking four planes. The Taliban and Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda had been under our investigation for many years. The current movement from Afghanistan over the past 20 years, culminating in a recent um, movement out of uh, Kabul to our military installations and ultimately to our society, have to be properly vetted. It's a complicated process. Many people, I'm sure, don't have all the documentation. Some probably don't have any documentation. Those that helped us and those that are trying to just leave Afghanistan. It's complicated. We saw this on a much smaller scale after the Vietnam War, and we saw it also during the war in the Balkans in the 1990s, where large numbers of people were processed and vetted. But they have to be vetted, and they have to be properly screened, or that can create other problems. The massive numbers that I've seen come out uh, in the last several weeks, now I don't want to get political, it's not my place to, but it is a long, ongoing process that has to be done, and it has to be done thoroughly and effectively to protect uh, our homeland. Talking more about Afghanistan, in your expert opinion, how might this impact the danger to our homeland? You know, the fact that we've basically armed with billions of dollars worth of equipment, our enemy over there, it was argued for years that we had to take the fight to the enemy so that the enemy doesn't come here. Do we have to worry about this again? Well, I don't think we've ever stopped worrying about it. I think it's just changed its colors, so to speak. Like I mentioned before, domestic terrorism has been in America for many, many years. And whether it's extreme on one side of the political equation from the left or the right, once they advocate violence and purport to support these acts of violence, they have to be properly uh, identified. I do believe that... um, The world of terrorism has moved around. You see it on the continent today in Africa. You see it all throughout Europe. You see it in the Far East. It's being supported and uh, financed by groups that move around that are much more mobile. Although ISIS had a certain form of 
uh, military on ground forces. The reality is these groups, it's sort of like cancer. It's like a disease. They metastasize, whether it's in small countries all over Africa or Europe or even from within our own borders. You have to be vigilant because the one thing I learned a long time ago in working these terrorism events is that the events themselves, if you don't stay ahead of the process, in other words, when the bombs are going off, that's the reactive time. You have to be prepared to deal with crime scenes and events as they occurred. Law enforcement from the time I became an FBI agent was always trying to prevent these acts of terrorism before they happen. Obviously, they've become more prevalent. Now, the key in working these groups is when the bombs aren't going off. In other words, that's the time when there's a tendency to either lay back or divert resources to other areas. But that's the time when you have to really be thorough and behind the scenes. That's when law enforcement needs to really do its job. It's due diligence, so to speak, because that's the time when these groups are planning the next round of these events. And that's when America and other governments have to be very, very uh, aggressive in preventing these acts in the future. Going back a little bit, you were among the first Americans to learn who Osama bin Laden was. Please tell us how you came to make this connection. Well, there was the agency uh, in the post-world of Afghanistan when the Soviets were driven out of Afghanistan. The agency did a a remarkable job of uh, establishing liaison and working with our State Department in Afghanistan in the 1990s. The groundwork was there. And then post 9-11, we had this foundation, which we were able to understand what we were fighting. But Osama bin Laden had made many public statements over the years. He had declared war on America. There were these events that I mentioned before about that occurred here in New York. There were acts of terrorism in Saudi Arabia. And so there was this intelligence and criminal activity involving multiple countries throughout the world. And uh, his group became stronger and stronger. And it had a network. All we saw throughout the Middle East or the Arabian Peninsula, ultimately in the Far East, And then they ultimately began to expand into places in Europe. And then ultimately they became westernized to be able to travel and uh, come to America. And that was his intention. He was known in our investigations in the, in the mid 1990s. The investigation was building and uh, becoming much more alarming. Again, these were all events that led up to 9 11. It wasn't as if 9-11 just happened in a vacuum by itself on that day. And there were warning signals. And um, again, at that time, we as law enforcement and our government were trying to utilize our resources and our expertise in combating this as we went along. But the best way to combat these events is to prevent them from ever actually happening. Once they happen, now you're under a certain... um, obligation and the requirement to uh, identify those and prosecute those. Reading about your background, I see that, I guess, the decision was made to let one of the key planners of the 1993 bombing, I guess, flee to Iraq. 
and tell me if I'm characterizing this correctly or incorrectly, let me know. But I read somewhere also that I guess you were critical of some people who said, okay, there's a connection now to you know 9-11 in Iraq because this person was now in Iraq. So if you can opine on that. The seven defendants that were identified and identified by us in the FBI, one defendant who has never been located, we do believe that he did ultimately, he was not a major player in the particular, he was a facilitator and, and under indictment and still is to this day, Abdul Yassin, there's still a $2 million reward for his arrest. There was family there. There was investigative techniques that were utilized to identify him there. The connection that has been made primarily with the Iraq government and the 9-11 Commission also determined that the connection actually between this individual and the government was at best very, very limited. To connect the government of Iraq with the 9-11 event or the event of the 1993 bombing of uh, the World Trade Center was never determined by us. Before the United States went into Iraq in, I believe, in 2002, it was known to the news media that uh, this individual, Abdul Rahman Yassin, there was some indication. And when I was interviewed by Leslie Stahl in 60 Minutes, there was some indication that some people were trying to possibly utilize a negotiation technique to maybe prevent us from entering Iraq based on perhaps turning him in or using him as some bartering chip. But the reality is he was never located there. In all likelihood, he probably was killed, at likelihood, I think. And uh, the connection with Saddam was at best limited. Killed by us or killed by the Iraqi government? It's hard to say. Yeah. His body has never been found. Yeah. And uh, then the determination was made based on our political leaders to go into uh, to Iraq. But the 9-11 Commission itself determined that the uh, subsequent to 9-11 happening, that it was the connection there was really never really what it was purported to be. During the George W. Bush administration, civil libertarians were concerned about the excesses of the Patriot Act. After the Bush administration, it seems that the concerns from many in the Democrat Party have dissipated a little bit, but now the libertarian wing of the Republican Party, they've expressed concern, you know, Rand Paul's outspoken about this, about government spying overreach. For example, it's been reported that members of our intelligence community spied on a Senate committee, and that Senate committee was investigating the intelligence committee's overreach. I know we have Americans advocating for the pardon of both Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. What are your thoughts about all of this with civil liberties and have we gone too far? Now, having been out of the government since before 9-11, the techniques that were used post 9-11 is a matter of concern. I can't say it was right or wrong. You have to understand that uh, there will always be people that believe that we overextended. I can't say what was right or what was wrong. I do know one thing, that the people that committed these acts over the years, as far as international or domestic act of terrorism, I think should be fully prosecuted. I, I have some grave reservations about the continuation of uh, our position in Guantanamo Bay. And I realize it's it's complicated subject, but I believe that um, with military tribunals mixed in with civil and criminal issues, it's very complicated, it's convoluted. 
And I think 20 years after some of these events and longer, those responsible should be prosecuted. Now, I understand there's a trade-off because they would be given certain rights that they some people would say they don't even deserve. Whether they were tortured, some of them I'm sure probably were. I don't know for a fact how extensive that was. But on the other hand, our system has worked. We prosecuted people here. We went through all this. And now what's happened is it sort of gets commingled in the whole political process where it becomes very convoluted as to what should be done with, with these individuals in our system. There should be a final determination. It's not something where you can just keep kicking the can down the road for 50 years. And I believe that our system is strong enough. There has to be the will of the American people and our elected officials to bring this to a conclusion if they can. And uh, just like they did in Afghanistan, there comes a point where these hard decisions have to be made, whether you agree with them or not. There are a lot of legal issues, I agree, privacy issues, and whether the uh, government has the right or the responsibility to conduct these kinds of overt acts. I do believe that there has to be a strong support by the American public to make that determination and not just not allow it to be resolved. And again, we go back to to the families, the victims of these crimes. They have a right. They have a right to know whether it also includes declassifying information. That all has to be part of the process. These things can be hidden for so long. And if they continue to be hidden, are not brought to the attention of the American people, no one will ever know what really did happen to the extent that they should. But again, it's the will of the American people and our elected officials have to take a stand and bring these to a, a logical and reasonable conclusion. What keeps you up at night? What are you worried about in America for the future? I do believe that the general area of terrorism is cyclical. It's ironic the way some things sort of come full circle in life. You know, I grew up in the Bureau in the uh, post-Watergate era, and um, our political system uh, made many changes because the government overreached in certain areas. The church committees, the legislation was written, rewritten on domestic terrorism. There were guidelines set up, and we saw a general population that became skeptical of the government. You have to be careful there because I do believe that there is a a point of uh, holding back what the law enforcement system can and can't do. You, You know, it's like a rubber band. You can stretch it so far, but if you stretch it too far, it's gonna break. And what I see in America today, in a world that's so polarized, the politics that I see, they're trying to uh, restrict what law enforcement can effectively do, does concern me that uh, the rubber band is being stretched too far. I do believe that domestic terrorism is an issue in our society now that has to be uh, carefully looked at. And uh, law enforcement has to have the resources, the manpower, and the will of the American people to effectively prevent these acts of terrorism that we see and could see in the very near future. It reminds me of where we were in the post-Watergate era as far as some of these groups, uh, whether they're from the from the so-called left or the right. Extreme on either side is very reckless. I know, I guess there are some Americans, some pundits, who say that, you know, the FBI is taking sides in terms of political parties. Again, it's a world that 
has changed so much in the last 40 years. It's hard to categorize these things. You know, when I was an FBI agent, it's funny. We never talked about politics. I didn't know the agents I worked with, the detectives, the investigators, the prosecutors, the people in uh, upper management in the bureau. It was never really a topic. I mean, generally, I would say most people in law enforcement are in the military, are relatively conservative, but it was never a discussion on what political party you were affiliated with because we only looked at at our jobs as trying to perform our responsibilities that we were sworn to be. It was never a topic that came up. I mean, people, I assume there were some Democratic FBI agents that supported the Democratic Party, some Republicans, some independent. It really didn't matter. It never really crossed my mind. Well, the reason I asked this also is because it seems like one party's, you know, very concerned about January 6th. The other party saying, well, you know, what about a whole summer or several years of riots from Antifa and BLM? You know, it just doesn't seem doesn't seem like there's anything in the middle here where people are saying, hey, you know, maybe both sides have some issues going on here. I think it's it goes way beyond some of these tragic events. Now people try to connect certain events with certain groups. And again, I think social media is, I understand the, the popularity and the, and the positive sides that it can show. But I, I do think this misinformation, misinformation, it's a bad set of uh, values that we can, uh, in, our, in our society, in open society, can be toxic. It's combustible with misinformation and violence and word of mouth. And you don't know what's factual and what's not. It's the same argument I used to have when I was in journalism school. We would never be allowed to do a story or uh, characterize something without proper you know, research, investigative tools. Even the way the first thing you were taught in journalism school was how to write an obituary. And I was told. You only get one chance to write the obituary. You know, you know, there's no retractions on obituaries. So one of the first things you're taught when you write an obituary in early stages of journalism is to make sure you get all the facts right, right the first time, because there is no second time. And today, you don't know what's right. You don't have to attribute it to a, a person or a, a second source. Things go on the air that are very fluid, developing. You don't know if you're reporting things that are even true. You got to have to be very careful with that. And it's the same argument that I heard for many years. You know, when I got into the bureau and I raised my right hand and I took the oath, I was the one that said, I'm willing to do this job and uphold my oath. And as time went on, you realize that life becomes more complicated. When you take the oath, you're representing your government under the responsibilities that you adhere to. And then, you know, you have families, then you have children. You know, when I look back on my career and my successes, there were some disappointments to say that there weren't would be misleading. But to work these cases and live up to that oath, there were sacrifices, there were missed birthdays, there were missed holidays, special events, my immediate family, my children, they didn't take the oath. And yet they were also victimized, not to say 
to the extent that these victims of terrorism families were. But there were sacrifices that were made. People's lives changed. When you're 25 or 30 years old and then you work in a career like this for 30 years and you see the effects that it can have on your family and your friends, you realize that there are things that are lost along the way. It's personal. It becomes personal. I always took the oath seriously. It's something that I tried to uphold. There are regrets. Again, uh, my family, uh, as in most law enforcement, had to make great sacrifices. It was a commitment, and uh, it was a commitment that uh, I took seriously. So looking around your home, I see many things hanging on the walls. That really struck me when I walked in here, just you know how much of your career awards you've gotten. You know, I see presidents that you knew. You know, obviously this is a huge part of your life, and we just got finished talking about how your family really you know had a sacrifice, and this has become very personal for you. If you can just sort of comment a little bit about really the artifacts hanging on your walls. When I became the supervisor, again I had been in the yard since 1974. So I I was here almost 18 years before I became the supervisor. These awards, I received a director's award, which is the highest award in the FBI in 1996, director-free. I think they only give out about five or six of those awards every year. And I received that in uh, Washington. But these awards that I have here now in my residence in Somers are those that I've received after I became a supervisor. Almost all of these awards from uh, law enforcement, uh, from agencies, accomplishments uh, over all these investigations really are from the last eight years of my career as a supervisor. So I ran out of room. Uh, I had these in my office when I left the bureau and uh, this was really the only place I could keep them. But the memories really to me or the the people I work with over the years and the relationships that I developed in both law enforcement. And it, it went well beyond the FBI. One of my strengths, I think, was that we learned over the years that developing relationships with local, state, federal personnel was really invaluable in working these cases. Prosecutors, the U.S. attorney's offices that are now I think there's some 93 throughout the country in each district. I developed relationships with these prosecutors over a lifetime, still keep in touch with them. But the personal friends and the relationships that I developed really were the the good side, the accomplishment side, much more so than the awards. But I'm glad I kept them because there wouldn't have been a memory other than in my mind But I I was just as proud of the relationship more than the awards and the accolades. It was really the the people that you got to know and respect and learn from. I tried to do that with the people that worked with me and, and for me, and then those that I worked for over the years, because, um, that's the special part of doing this, not the actual award ceremonies and the, and the plaques and all that. I mean, those are nice, but uh, the real memories are the memories that you develop with the relationships 
Did you develop any sort of relationships? I see uh, portraits, uh, signed portraits from various presidents in your home. Well, the relationships with the presidents really weren't personal, but they were through the Secret Service. I had a very close relationship during the uh, the George H. Bush, Clinton years, even back to the Ronald Reagan years, and George W. Bush after I left. But a lot of those relationships with the political leaders really were more of a, a relationship that we had with the Secret Service hmm. because we intermingled with them on events and crises and things like that. As a matter of fact, the phone call that I, I just had was from close secret service supervisor who I kept in touch with, and I still do even to this day. So those are the kinds of things. And, uh, you know, I was able to go to Camp David or the White House on a few occasions and even up in Kenny Court. But uh, the reality was it was the personal connections and each agency. It wasn't always perfect, but it was necessary. That takes time. That's those are relationships that you develop in a career, as most people do in many different fields, over a lifetime that uh, are both professional and personal. So I have two more questions. I just want to go back to the very beginning. You mentioned earlier in the interview that you went to journalism school. So how did you, you know, make the jump from journalism school to the FBI? Growing up from St. Louis, my father was a reporter. Yeah, for the Globe Democrat uh, and also KMOX Radio. And he was a beat reporter for the Cardinals for, I believe, 34 years. So I grew up with a father that was a reporter. Now he was a sports reporter and traveled with the Cardinals. And, uh, you know, I grew up at the ballpark. He went to spring training every year. So I ended up, I had an interest in journalism. Although I was a big sports fan and still I am today, primarily baseball, but other sports, but really baseball. Uh, I went to University of Missouri Journalism School, the oldest in the country. And when I left uh, in 1970, I never really considered going into something like the FBI. My father had a relationship or knew several agents in the St. Louis office. And at the time, there was a big push for FBI agents. There was a, a recently passed organized crime bill and there was a thousand agents that were being added under J. Edgar Hoover. And uh, I never really considered going into law enforcement. I was an only child. I was being trained to go into primarily news into hard journalism, not into sports, although I might have gone into something like that. But anyway, I applied and I never really I didn't have an uncle or a father or a brother that was in law enforcement. And so it was one of those things where I wasn't sure. But it's interesting because there are a lot of similarities, more than you would think, between journalism and doing a job like being an FBI agent. You have to interview people. Yeah, it's a very, it, at that time, it's, it's more electronic now, I understand, and more computer and, and more technology. But it was really more about writing than people would think, although there were more dimensions to it than what you would do in journalism, you know, with with being armed and uh, arresting people. So it was alike, but it was also different. There were similarities that I was able to use my skills as being taught in journalism that I could apply to being an agent. The other issue that I really didn't get into much at all so far was 
during my career in New York, because I did have this background in journalism, I also was tasked at times, but never really overrode what I was responsible for in terrorism or working as an agent. I did handle the media in New York for a number of years. And that also gave me a little bit of a special relationship with dealing with the press and understanding the importance of the responsibilities of informing the press in representing the Bureau. So that really kind of gave me a unique kind of a connection between the government and the media. And in New York, it was really quite different than it would be in many other parts of the country. The press in New York is interesting. You could probably go and have a lot of stories with the relationship. And I developed very close relationships with members of the press over the years and still have some contacts that uh, I'd like to say are not just professional, but personal friends and things like that. And uh, New York really was unique in that sense. Mm, very interesting. And I, I, I can confirm with you, I think that the favorite part of any journalist's job is when they start trying to solve different stories going on and you know trying to investigate. So I could definitely see the uh, similarities there. Um, just going back into uh, Somers now, just your connection living in Somers. You know, what are you involved in in town? What's your favorite things to do in town? Part of my family still lives in Somers. Uh, my two children, my two daughters, Chai and Naomi, went to school in Somers. They have now left. Uh, they're in the metropolitan area. I have two grandchildren in the area. But uh, I keep kind of a low profile and uh, spend time with my grandchildren and uh, my two daughters. I do a lot of reading. I'm a pretty avid reader now, much more so than I, I've been to some other th- areas like art history and things unrelated to law enforcement or terrorism, although I've always kept in touch with my old roots in terrorism. But I keep fairly low-key. I don't socialize all that much, and um, I don't do that much traveling. I kind of like it. It's uh, getting up in age and just try to in this world, stay healthy and keep active and do some, uh, a little bit of uh, local traveling to Connecticut and, and uh, areas in uh, upstate and New, New Jersey. But uh, living in Westchester, Northern Westchester, was one of the big facets in my life that played a big role because it gave me an escape from the city, from the stress of the job. It was a good selection. I didn't know much about this area. But uh, my ex-wife was from Lower Westchester, and uh, I like Northern Westchester. I think it's a beautiful area. It's been one of my constant connections with New York, having lived. I've lived here longer than I've lived out anywhere. I enjoyed the town of Somers. It offers a lot of uh, opportunities. It's changed a lot over the years, as most places do. It's a quincentennial kind of a rural area close to New York city. I don't really go into the city that much, but the town of Somers gives me a chance to reflect, and uh, I've enjoyed living here all these years. Do you have a favorite restaurant in Somers? I'd rather not say. Okay. I, I, I used to go out a great deal, but uh, I think there are uh, a lot of local places, not just in Somers, but in the surrounding towns, uh, North Salem and, you know, in Connecticut, um, the Greenwich area I go down to occasionally, and uh, 
over in Rockland County. I spend some time over there because one of my daughters lives over there with my two grandchildren. And but uh, I enjoyed the city when I worked was working there a lot. And again, when my my dad traveled to to New York with the Cardinals, I you know used to spend a lot of time with him. But uh, I'll just close by saying this one story. You might get a kick. I mean, it's really not Somers related, but I remember when I first came to New York, I was here for about a month. I was living on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. The FBI office was at 69th Street and 3rd Avenue on the Upper East Side. My dad came to town uh, with the Cardinals, and I went out to, uh, I was only here for about a month. And it was a big adjustment coming to live in New York. New York is not an easy place to live and work, especially in this kind of a job. I remember going out to the ballpark at the time. It was Shea Stadium. Took a subway out there. It was a weeknight. And I sat in the press box with my dad. He was, you know, doing his job. And the game, it was funny. They were playing the Cardinals, obviously, because my dad was here. The game ended up going for 23 innings. Oh, wow. At the time, I believe it was either the longest or the second longest baseball game in Major League history. Anyway, to make a long story short, the game ends maybe 3, 3.30 in the morning. Now, this is a seven-hour game. Now, today they play games four or five hours. It's commonplace. But anyway, the game ends at 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, it's a weekday. You know, I just come to New York, and I was with my dad. And then he's now starting to write his story, although he probably had missed his deadline by hours at that point. The game ends, and I'm sitting there with my dad. I'm about ready to, to go back to my apartment in the city. And I was going to go take you know the subway back. And uh, I realized the game ends in Shea Stadium. People would, you could see the platform where the, where the train stopped there at the end of the year. Uh, and then people either go back to Manhattan or they go out to, you know, they go east or they go, you know, to Long Island. And anyway, most people go to the ballpark, either personal car, but a lot of them go by train. And I remember the game's three o'clock in the morning. And I realized that the 200 people that were still left there, now they had been there at least eight, nine hours, at least. And I remember seeing them run for the next train after spending eight hours at a baseball game. And I thought to myself, gee, I mean, this place really is different. I mean, having grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis, where they don't even have public transportation, (laughs) and here after a baseball game at three o'clock in the morning, they're running to a train to catch the next train to go on with their lives. And I thought to myself, you know what? I have a feeling this place is really different. Little did I know how different it was going to be over a lifetime, having lived here now 44 years. I mean, it's a small little tidbit. Yeah. But to me, it showed really how different and unique New York was. And by living and finding this place in Somers, sort of did give me a little bit of a haven for getting away, if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. from this, even though it was a commute every day and there were long hours, it was one of my better decisions and for my family to live and grow up and live in a place like Somers because it is a nice bucolic suburb of the city. Well, Neil Herman, thank you very, very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you uh, for your service to our country as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for listening.